This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 11th of November 2023. It's 1700 in Beijing, 11am in Kiev, 9am here in London and 4am in Washington DC. You're listening to Monocle Radio. Monocle on Saturday starts now. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Now, coming up on today's programme, I'll be joined by Charles Hecker, and we'll go through the global papers together. Then... I think through these three very different ways in, into discussing beauty, hopefully will open up that conversation. Monocle's Steph Chungu meets the curator of the new Welcome Collection exhibition, Cult of Beauty. First, though, here's the news. Israel faces mounting international pressure, including from its main ally, the United States, to do more to protect Palestinian civilians in Gaza as the death toll rises and fighting intensifies near and around hospitals. Ukraine's capital, Kyiv, came under air attack today and big explosions were heard, the mayor Vitaly Klitschko said, but there was no immediate information on casualties. It was the first attack on Kyiv since late September. And India and the United States announced progress on key defence deals and said they would expand their growing partnership in the face of geopolitical challenges as their top diplomats and senior ministers met on Friday in New Delhi as part of their annual 2 plus 2 dialogue focused on the Indo-Pacific region. And that's your Monocle Radio News. Hello and welcome to Monocle on Saturday. I am joined in the studio by Charles Hecker. Good morning to you, Charles. Good morning, Georgina. It's lovely to have you here. It's a pleasure to be here. It's feeling very autumny. We're both dressed in autumn colours. We complement each other beautifully, actually. That's right. We're quite matchy in our camel-coloured sweaters and they're very much needed. It was actually, I think, the coldest morning so far this fall. Absolutely freezing. Very difficult to get out of bed and on the road, I have to tell you. Waking in the darkness. <laughs> um, it is November. We should expect this kind of weather in November. Finally, uh, sort of winter is coming in, I think. That's right. As they say on Saturday Night Live periodically, sweater weather. Sweater weather. Well, it's November, as I say, but the 11th of November specifically, and that is uh, important for many, many reasons. One of them is, of course, that it is Leonardo DiCaprio's birthday, um, which I think is a cause for celebration. Happy birthday, Leonardo. (laughs) It's also the birthday of uh, Tamsin Howard, who's the producer of Meet the Writers and one of our sound engineers here at Monaco. Oh, congratulations to her too. It was the day that Yasser Arafat died in 2004 in Paris. And as we know, he was uh, the president of the Palestinian Authority. And that brings us to the other important date today, which is, of course, that it's Armistice Day. Uh, On the 11th hour of the 11th day of the uh, 11th month, uh, that's when uh, when the Allied powers and Germany signed an armistice document in 1918. Uh, And of course, that is uh, celebrated across the Commonwealth. It's also Veterans Day in the United States. So this is a 
very, very important day for people who want to remember the wars and the people that fought in them. It's also the day, of course, where there will be many, many marches uh, protesting at the violence currently ongoing in uh, in Gaza. Uh, and that brings us to a, a huge political row that's going on here in Britain and could actually result in a major shake-up of the UK government if the Home Secretary is fired or perhaps resigns, which we think she may actually do. That's right. London is a little bit on edge this morning as it anticipates one of the very largest uh, pro-Palestinian protests um, throughout the center of London. As you're right, um, as you point out correctly, it is coinciding with um, Armistice Day and Remembrance Weekend and, of course, Remembrance Sunday um, tomorrow. And this has sparked an intense political row. Uh, because Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, um, wanted the march to be banned. She labeled it a hate march, um, saying that sometimes these marches contain ingredients, um, protesters um, that are shouting for jihad and that are pro-Hamas rather than pro-Palestinian. She is at loggerheads with the head of the Met, uh, London's police service, that says they have not found grounds for canceling the protests and those grounds would be an imminent threat to public safety. Um, and the Met has pushed back quite vigorously, saying this is political interference in our operational issues. Kindly leave us alone. Uh, the Home Secretary seems to be having nothing of it, and it's all wound up on Rishi Sunak's desk. Mm. And, of course, she wrote an op-ed in The Times uh, saying all of this. Uh, it wasn't cleared by the uh, Prime Minister's office. She said some things that I think they would rather not have been said in public, uh, and therefore she has broken the ministerial code, and that would be the grounds on which she would be fired. Now, the the two uh, celebrations is the wrong word, that the the marking of Armistice Day and the pro-Palestinian march uh, are in two separate, although quite close areas of London. The worry is, and this is what she has said, is that that this will spill over, it will will mar the Armistice Day uh, uh, marking, if you like. Um, And a lot of people are saying, well, you're just, you're fomenting that hate, actually, Suella Braverman. That's right. A lot of this is being laid at her feet and saying that she, in fact, has been whipping up a lot of the tension, a lot of the resentment um, and a lot of the sort of racist hostility um, that is accompanying the discussion of the protest. Um, As a result, um, the Met is now in sort of full riot mode um, and is deploying thousands of police officers specifically um, to protect the cenotaph, which is the focal point of all of the memorial activities around um, Armistice Day and Remembrance Sunday. Um, and, and march organizers have said they will be nowhere near there and they have absolutely no interest in approaching the cenotaph or having anything to do with it. Um, the additional problem, which at- attaches to almost any sort of political or politicized um, march in the centre of London is that there are elements that, that nobody will be able to control that are coming into London um, perhaps as spoilers. Um, and that happens in environmental marches and it happens in the anti-hunting protests. Um, and there are groups that are um, that potentially have, have the, the, the capacity um, to turn this into something slightly ugly. And I guess that's what the police are protesting, protecting against. Um, you know, march organizers have been meeting with the police um, to assure that things do go peacefully. Um, there have been several marches of this character in London already. Um, the vast majority of them have gone without incident. Mm. 
I got caught up in one in Paris actually last weekend. Um, so, I mean, they are going on in a lot of different places. Now, Anthony Blinken, uh, it's reported in the FT and indeed in other publications, uh, Anthony Blinken, the US Secretary of State, says too many Palestinians are being killed in the Israel-Hamas war. Uh, the US has called for more action to protect civilians uh, as friction builds between Washington and Israel. Uh, so uh, Washington, of course, Israel's one of Israel's staunchest allies. It seems there is a bit of a rift there now. That's right. So we're jumping into the papers, and this is this is one of the lead stories in the Financial Times. And I think it points to a gradual shift in tone from the United States. And the FT goes on to say that, that France is joining in a slightly louder chorus um, calling for a ceasefire. Um, and, and Anthony Blinken did say, actually, it's a direct quote that far too many Palestinians are being killed on the ground as a result of, of Israel's penetration of the Gaza Strip. And um, so far, Israel has rebuffed calls for a direct ceasefire. This is an increasing point of disagreement uh, between the United States and Israel and between the Biden administration and the Netanyahu government. Um, and the, Israel has implemented brief humanitarian pauses on a daily basis. What the United States and France want now um, is a ceasefire and a pause in hostilities. Um, Israel's resisting saying that the only thing that would happen here is that Gaza, rather um, Hamas, would regroup and attack once again. Um, Israel wants to penetrate the Gaza Strip to such an extent that it disables the system of tunnels um, underground that it says are Hamas's primary supply routes where weapons still uh, lay ready and waiting. Mm. Uh, I mean, it's the, the, the rift is very, very interesting, particularly as we see this weekend, there's a big conference going on in Saudi Arabia trying to map a way forward uh, through uh, Arab and Islamic nations. Uh, there's also a, a conference going on in Paris looking at how to get more aid into Palestine. That's right. I mean, there are several different points of, of, of disagreement um, between sort of the West and, and, and the Middle East on this. Um, you know, I think Israel is going to have to be increasingly careful um, as the war goes on and the longer it does uh, wear on um, that these sorts of, of disagreements and, and the fissures that are opening up between its allies um, and the Netanyahu administration um, will increase. And, and one of the problems actually itself is the presence of Benjamin Netanyahu um, at the head of the Israeli government. And, and, and there's no love lost, generally speaking, between the United States and uh, between the Biden administration and between Netanyahu. So um, I, I, I think that this article in the FT is pointing towards um, what will turn out to be increasing pressure that will be increasingly difficult for Israel to resist. Mm. Uh, let's turn to another kind of eruption. This is uh, Iceland, and they've declared in a state of emergency over a volcano eruption threat. That's right. We're in The Guardian now, and, and deep into this story about a state of emergency being declared over the volcanic eruption is a genuinely shocking statistic, and that is that since late October, so just, you know, in the past couple of weeks, 24,000 tremors have been registered on a peninsula in southwest Iceland um, called the, and please don't hold me accountable for any of my <laughs> upcoming pronunciation, but it is the Reykjanes uh, Peninsula, um, which is home to a town called Grindavik. Um, Grindavik just has a few thousand people, um, but apparently... Um, you know the, the the lava in the in the bowels of the earth is swelling up beneath Grindavik and and threatening to erupt, 
and the threat is is so prominent um, that you know Iceland's famous Blue Lagoon has been closed, um, and you know we know that Iceland is in a seismically active region, and it wasn't too long ago that a volcano in Iceland disrupted aviation uh, for quite some time, and and I think that the authorities there indeed expect a volcanic eruption. It's a question of when and not if. And they're taking all sorts of emergency measures to make sure that the damage is limited. Yeah. Do you remember that eruption? I mean, it re- was very... Iger Popper Kettle something was the name of the well volcano. But um, it was it was very serious disruption. People got were stranded for a long time in different parts of the world. That's right. My recollection is that it went on for, for, for a couple of weeks. And, and as always happens um, with, with aviation delays is that they have their own knock-on effect and create their own crisis as airplanes are, are pushed out of location. But this was a volcano that shot a plume of thick, dark, gray ash right into the transatlantic aviation route uh, and and was was quite a, a global phenomenon. Mm. Of course, Iceland is a, 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 one of those destinations that often comes up when people talk about where they're going for Christmas because people want snowy Christmases and all the rest of it. And they have the very, very best Christmas tradition. Uh, and that is, uh, they always give books on Christmas Eve. Uh, and I just love that, how they, they meld literary and holiday pleasures into, into a single event. And it's just, and, and the idea is that everybody spends Christmas Christmas Eve reading, which I think is wonderful. I'm looking at the very attractive pile of books on the desk next to you, Georgina, and I'm thinking, what a perfect gift for Christmas. Could there be anything better than giving the gift of a book? Absolutely. I couldn't I couldn't agree more. But in terms of, of books, what about beautiful books? Because book design is something I think that's absolutely fascinating. And quite often, you know, the, the whole phrase, don't judge a book by its cover. But, <laughs> but you do, if a book, you know, books, books announce themselves by how they look. Guilty as charged. Um, you know, everyone likes to spend time browsing in bookstores and and looking at the covers and and I have to admit that I have been lured in more than once just by an attractive cover um, it's it's a delight when the pages inside match the beauty on the exterior it's a bit of a disappointment when there isn't that agreement between the the, the, the cover and the contents um, but yes um, book design I'm, I'm resisting the temptation to plug my own upcoming book. Of in this course. Well, let's talk about it. No, 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 no. Only, only to the extent that, that, that cover design is, is beginning. That's so exciting. It's very exciting indeed. Um, and I want nothing to do with it because I have absolutely no graphic design talents whatsoever. Well, a lot of talent in China because 25 Beauty of Books winners from China are going to compete in a German design competition. So 25 books from 24 domestic, domestic publishing houses in China are going off to... To, to this, they'll they'll choose uh, the, uh, some book designers will choose winners from more than two hundred and thirty books, uh, and this is across all of these genres. It takes place in Leipzig in Germany. Uh, it's the best book design from all over the world. Two thousand and twenty four competition. I'm looking at, at some of the illustrations that come with the story, and, and these book covers are absolutely breathtaking. I really hope to see some of these in bookstores, particularly in the run-up to Christmas. I definitely hope to see some of these books on the shelves throughout the, the, the retail outlets around London. Um, I just think it's absolutely inventive, um, and, and you want to see these books displayed, not so that you just read the title on the spine, but you, so that you see that the artwork, um, the paper craft, um, and, and the 3D nature of some of these book covers 
covers. Um, it, it's absolutely beautiful. Mm. I'm, I've just been looking back through our Meet the Writers archives uh, and uh, because I'll be at the uh, Christmas market in Zurich on the first weekend of December and I think we're going to, to have a lot of uh, books that have featured on the programme there uh, and I'm sort of just having such fun choosing the best ones that, that I really want to talk to our listeners about when, when, when I meet them in Zurich and just sort of have these, these beautiful books out. Books, Christmas, Spiced Wine... And Zurich, not a bad combination. Not a bad combination. But let's continue talking about beauty because the concept of beauty is being explored in a new exhibition in London. The Cult of Beauty at the Welcome Collection explores the history and science of beauty as well as the profound influence of morality, status and health, age, race and gender on the perception of the concept. Well, Monocle's Steph Chungu spoke to the exhibition's curator, Janice Lee, to find out more. The concept of beauty has been a human fascination for centuries. From the latest anti-aging cream now, to drinking literal gold for immortality in the past. Of course, that's nothing if not the standard of objects shown at the Cult of Beauty exhibition at the Welcome Collection. This exhibition explores a concept of beauty with over 200 items and interactive rooms, all dedicated to explore the ideals of beauty standards and the drive to achieve perfection. From the evolution of Vogue magazine to the popularity and extremes of cosmetic surgery, the cult of beauty gives an insight to global beauty standards, such as exploration into modern hairstyles in Nigeria, to a gaze into androgynous beauty in life and art, to name a few. The expansive exhibit is curated by Janice Lee. Here she tells me how the concept of the exhibition came to be. I just started off with wanting people to see very different aspects of beauty, which is why you can see in the design of it as well that each section have a completely different mood and colour palette and materials to highlight how multifaceted the concept of beauty is. It was really interesting to discover how the history of beauty is so intertwined with one of health and scientific discovery and innovation and technological advancement. The cult of beauty follows three concepts. The industry, the ideals and subverting beauty. While the ideals and industry look at the history and integration of science within beauty, the submersive looks at interpretations and the introduction of technology with the future looming of beauty. Janice shares more in detail. Each section have a completely different mood and colour palette and materials to highlight how multifaceted the concept of beauty is. And obviously, you can't not talk about ideals and notions and bodies if you're talking about beauty. But then in our world today, there's so much about the industry and and the digital culture. And also, it was really interesting to discover how the history of beauty is so intertwined with one of health. I think through these three very different ways of ways in into discussing beauty, hopefully will open up that conversation. Janice worked with professors, theticists, historians, and of course beauty brands and content creators. The exhibition also has an interactive installation, which Janice explains. Forgive me for describing it so terribly, but it's a mechanic of like big vials in the center and it's set on this amazing wave concoction on statue thing and inside the vials there are different components that is used for like skincare or beauty so there was a smell of rose water i wanted to know how was it curating with the artist that created the sensorium i 
would say that's one of the most enjoyable experience as a curator to commission a piece like that with my own background I do a lot of interdisciplinary work and what I've observed is that it's really difficult to get people who are experts in their specialism to work together and to use creative means to bring it to a broader audience is so rewarding but also so soothing. Beauty Sensorium is one that I keep going back to just as a sanctuary for myself and I think that's a really good sign that it's done something. In the final section of the exhibit, the future of beauty details of an artist that is known as Narcissista. The New York-based artist, working exclusively with Janice for the exhibit, created a tower of her mother's belongings, from random notes to photos, all hovering over a single wooded chair with a pair of heels. For me personally, it's been a year-long process working with Narcissista. I first met her in person and discussed the idea of this commission about a year ago. Narcissistic practice had been really bold. There are a lot of strong, explicit imagery in her work. She's not worried at all to push boundaries and be controversial. But behind this mass persona, I just feels really privileged to be able to see that side of her forming her practice through a really vulnerable origin, that complex relationship with one's mother. A lot of people have um, the complexity of being a mixed-race person, carrying a lot of intergenerational trauma from both sides of her heritage. It's such a good poignant illustration on how nothing in life is in isolation. We can't just talk about beauty in terms of aesthetics or morality or age because it's quite intrinsic to a lot of aspects of our lives. There are ideals of the beauty industry as a whole, but there are also dark explorations in the exhibit. For one, with British photographer Juno Calypso. Their work features pastel pinks and blue interiors, chintzy curtains and 1970s finger food. This is while her alter ego Joyce inflicts rigorous and, at times, lonely beauty regimes on herself. After all, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. For Monocle in London, I'm Steph Chungu. Many thanks to Steph and that exhibition at the Welcome Collection is uh, currently ongoing on the cult of beauty. Charles, we heard there that perceptions of beauty are affected by morality and status, age, health, a variety of, of different factors. How has beauty been affected by different cultures? I mean, you've lived all over the world. How have you found those different concepts of beauty? Georgina, can I tell you that one of the first things that struck me in, in, in different countries, differing attitudes towards beauty is, and honestly, it, it really just sort of hit me in the face shortly after moving from, well, first I lived in the United States, then I lived in Moscow, and then I moved to London. Um, and you see it immediately on the faces of different countries' news readers, the people who present the evening news at around dinner time, no matter what country that you're in. And, and I think that, that the contrast is fairly stark. American newsreaders, women in particular, but certainly men have bought into the beauty myth and, and are equally all slathered with makeup. Mm. Um, it is hair, it's makeup, and it's lots of it in, in, in equal proportions. Um, Russia, the newsreaders tend to be slightly more conservative in their appearance. They're on government-run channels. Um, they are, you know, 
without invoking stereotypes, um, Russian women tend to be quite beautiful and quite glamorous. Um, on the news, they're quite, um, I think, conservative. Then you move to the United Kingdom and the BBC, um, ITV and Channel 4. And and I think that, that sort of the lack of artifice in the presentation of the news and also of the news readers is really quite stark. I thought there was, you know, very, very little emphasis on the appearance of newsreaders mm. on British television. Do you know, I, I, I experienced this personally, but there was a, a big news story that I was commenting on for many, many different channels. And it was so extraordinary to go from the BBC, where they just basically you know, give you a dab of powder and shove you on, <laughs> to then go to CNN. <gasps> and the whole rigmarole, hair, makeup, everything. And it was just, it was very, very strange. Um, and, and even within American broadcasters, if you switch from CNN, say, to then something like Fox News, where it looks like a sort of Miss America pageant um, in, in the emphasis on, on clothing and hair and makeup for both the men and the women, um, even within um, certain national um, framing, um, you can see fairly stark differences. Absolutely. Well, Fox News and CNN, of course, are having a field day with a story about the new New York mayor. That's right. We're in the New York Times now. And the headline, a fairly fat headline, says FBI seizes Eric Adams's phones as campaign investigation intensifies. Eric Adams, of course, is the mayor of New York. And just a few days ago, one of the most senior officials in his mayoral campaign had her home raided. Um, and documents and laptops and electronic devices were seized. Um, the investigation appear, appears to be widening, and the Times goes into a fairly dramatic description of how the mayor was about to get into his you know, limousine um, at the end of an event that he was attending in his official capacity, uh, and the FBI approached him asked him to step aside, went into the car and took out his iPads, his electronic devices, and then asked him individually and personally to fork over his phone. Um, and so the Times is being careful here. Um, there is no indication that the mayor himself is accused of any wrongdoing, and that's important to point out. Um, but of course, this is his, camp his mayoral campaign structure that's under investigation for allegedly illegal connections to Turkish companies and Turkish government officials who may have been funneling money inappropriately into campaign coffers. Um, and so um, he's clearly a person of interest um, to this investigation, although he himself for the time being is not accused of anything. Mm, very, very interesting. We were talking earlier about why people get into politics, and it does seem that the, quite a lot of people there have a bit of a dark backstory going on. Well, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll invoke the, the rich American legal tradition of, of, of innocent until proven guilty here, but I guess anyone will have to admit that it would be better to have a mayor where something like this didn't happen uh, than to have a mayor where it did. And, 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 you know, New York has a love-hate relationship with every single one of its mayors. And I don't think if you asked any New Yorker, they would ever say any of them were any good. Um, you know, it's interesting now to think about the quality of political candidates and the quality of office holders in the United States, which I think, um, broadly speaking, is on a downward trajectory. Um, you know, we'll see how this case develops um, and whether eventually... Um, the mayor has to step aside just of, of interest in an unrelated investigation. 
um, the home of Portuguese prime minister. The Portuguese prime minister was raided um, earlier this week, and he immediately resigned. Mm. Um, and so we'll see if, if this isn't what happens with the Eric Adams investigation. I mean, that is a problem, though, that when people you don't respect are in charge uh, and they are making the rules. And one of the rules, of course, is tax. And we all uh, pay our tax. Um, most of us do at any rate. <laughs> and honestly, I don't resent paying it at all because I feel that I get really good services in return, or at least we <laughs> we did. The health service, unfortunately, is, is not what it once was. Um, but what one does tend to resent is is the uh, the VAT on, on things. So uh, the Treasury is now on the brink of raising alcohol duty for the second time in four months. Um, that's right. And it's going to be a whopping increase. So we are in the Times of London now with a headline that says, Jeremy Hunt poised to hit wine drinkers with second rise in duty. Jeremy Hunt, of course, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, who's in charge of how much money the country makes and how much the money the country spends. Um, and what they're doing is they're going to let the duty on 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 wine, in particular on red wine, um, they're going to let it rise with the rate of inflation. Inflation in the United Kingdom is still pretty high. It's 8.9%, and that's a whopping increase on a bottle of wine. There's an interesting thing in here, though, Georgina. The Times tells us that as a result of this whopping new duty on on red wine, the average price of a bottle of red wine is going to hit eight pounds. I was a little bit surprised that actually we're all drinking pretty rubbish wine at eight pounds a bottle. That strikes me as a little bit cheap. Yeah, I, I do a, a, a podcast for a winemaker. I did a podcast for it for some winemakers, and um, they were telling me that really anything under ten pounds is basically undrinkable, because the the, the the winemaker themselves will get maybe I don't know two pounds of that or something. It's a very very low amount, and so that wine is indeed very very cheap. And they're saying you really need to be looking at the the high teens once you're getting a a, a decent bottle of wine. Well, I think this reflects two things, and, and at the risk of sounding like a bit of a wine snob. I mean, a number of years ago, you usually could get a decent bottle of red wine in the 10-pound area. I mean, this is perhaps many, many years ago. Um, and, and you're right. You've had to sort of move that bracket up. But going back to our conversation about judging books by their cover, it's interesting that we do feel sort of reassured about the quality of a wine in connection with the price mm. um, and the label. And, and I guess we're all a little bit guilty of, of thinking that more expensive wine is better. The greatest disappointment, of course, for all British buyers of wine is that once you get to the continent, you realize that you're paying through the nose and, and that, that most of our, our European um, friends are spending half the price for wine that's twice as good. Well, absolutely. It's far too early for wine, but should we go and have a coffee now? <laughs> Oh, coffee also, by the way, is getting very expensive. So, yes, let's have it while we can. Okay. Uh, Charles, thank you very much indeed. That's all from Monocle on Saturday. Thanks to our producer and studio engineer, Mariella Bevan, uh, and, of course, to Charles. Uh, the programme will return next weekend. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thanks for listening. <laughs>